0: How to stay safe and secure in podcasting. Welcome to The Audacity to Podcast, episode 289. Thank you for joining me for the Audacity to Podcast. I'm Daniel J. Lewis, and this is the award-winning, in-depth podcast about podcasting. It's where I give you the guts and teach you the tools to launch or improve your own podcast for sharing your passions and finding success. In the previous episode, number 288, I talked about keeping your privacy while podcasting. And in this episode, I want to talk about the other side of this that you should consider in protecting yourself, and that is your security, not only for yourself, but also For your podcast, how to protect your podcast, how to ensure your security is high enough so that you don't risk losing things or if you lose things, then it's much easier to get back on track. If you'd like to follow along in the show notes for this episode, number 289, go to theaudacitypodcast.com slash security. I have 17 tips for you. So you will want to get the links and resources and review this information in the show notes for this episode. Again, that's at theaudacitypodcast.com slash security. First, an overview. Number one, prioritize your privacy. Number two, maintain reasonable ownership. Number three, use secure passwords. Number four, activate two-factor authentication everywhere. Number five, make up answers to security questions. Number six, use password managers. Number seven, backup regularly and redundantly. Number eight, archive instead of deleting. Number nine, update frequently and upgrade when you can. Number 10, share login access smartly and rarely. Number 11, be cautious on public or unsecure Wi Fi. Number 12, secure your mobile devices. Number 13, think critically. Number 14, monitor weak spots. Number 15, implement protections. Number 16, Enable Encryption, and number 17, Find People You Can Trust. As you can tell, there's a lot of information packed into this episode for ways to keep yourself and your podcast secure and safe. So please go to the show notes at onespodcast.com slash security. That's also where you can comment on this episode and share it out if you found it helpful or if you think it would help other people. Now I want to dig into this in more detail. Number one, prioritize your privacy. In the last episode, I talked about how to protect your privacy while podcasting, so definitely go back and listen to episode 288 if you haven't already. The thing you need to remember is that it may seem great to be transparent online through your podcast, through social networks, and all of this stuff, and it may be really fun as well, but this could be at the cost of your own privacy. In my previous episode, I said some things that might have scared you about what people can figure out about you, where you live, things about your family, and personally identifying information. And I hope that scared you. I wanted it to scare you. And I want you to be scared about this information, not to be paralyzed by fear, but to let that fear inspire you to take action to protect your privacy. So go listen to that episode to learn more about it. This is really the first step to online security is also your online privacy. That's why I put this as number one prioritize your privacy. Number two, maintain reasonable ownership. As much as possible, ensure you own or at least have significant control over the most important parts of your podcast. For a start, think about your RSS feed, your domain, and your hosting. With your RSS feed, do you own the URL? That people are subscribed to, can you redirect it whenever and wherever you want. Now you may be able to have total control even if you don't own that URL. For example, Libsyn, which is I think the only other place I would let you trust your RSS feed to if you don't already own the URL that powers your RSS feed. Libsyn is one of those great places. You can redirect that feed whenever and wherever you want. And if you decide to cancel your account you can have them permanently direct that feed to wherever you want. So even though they own the URL... You have as much ownership over that as is possible and you can insert things into that RSS feed, custom RSS tags and that kind of thing. You can also, of course, do that with your own PowerPress powered feed where it's powered by your own domain. You own that URL so you can do whatever you want with it. That's why Libsyn and PowerPress are the only two ways I can full-heartedly recommend for creating your RSS feed for your podcast. Here's something else to think about though with your RSS feed. Is the URL reserved in some way that no one else can steal it, either intentionally or accidentally? Only a couple weeks ago, there was an incident with Jason Van Orden from Internet Business Mastery. Do you recognize those initials? I-B-M. You can probably see where this is going. Due to a string of odd things, Jason no longer had ownership over that specific feed burner URL for that podcast. So along comes IBM, you know, the IBM. IBM, and they rather ignorantly, not arrogantly, not stealing, not intellectual property, lawyers weren't involved, anything like that. But someone from IBM came along and made the same feed burner URL, which then unintentionally hijacked all of Jason's podcast subscribers and subscribed them to the IBM feed, which wasn't even a valid podcast feed. So all of Jason's episodes disappeared from iTunes, and his podcast could have disappeared from iTunes. But he was able to resolve this situation wonderfully, very peaceably, very quickly, and so that he didn't lose his position in iTunes. And nothing was really lost in the long term, but it was one of those big cautionary tales. When you register your name in certain places, a username or a URL, is that actually reserved so that that kind of thing can't happen? Domains aren't like that. That's how I got the domain danieljlewis.com. It had expired. The previous owners did nothing to protect it. And when you register a domain, if you don't keep renewing that domain, after a certain amount of time, you do have a sort of grace period before that domain is deleted. But then anyone else could potentially take ownership of that domain. That's why I really highly suggest when you register a domain, and if you ever publicize that you own that domain, keep renewing it for the rest of your life. Because someone at some point could take that domain and do something malicious or simply just take it away from your podcast and form your ownership. Libsyn does help protect you against this kind of thing because when you register a show on Libsyn, you register a particular slug and then that slug is reserved. So maybe your slug is My Awesome Podcast. So no one else can ever register another feed on Libsyn with that same slug, My Awesome Podcast. Because then that would potentially steal from you. Libsyn is really good at protecting you from that. Now, domains, Feed Burner don't have that kind of same protection. So you need to be very careful with protecting and owning your RSS feed. The second thing I mentioned is the domain. Always point people to your domain. Don't say myawesomepodcast.somewhereelse.com. Even if that is the ultimate website where people land, always point them to your own domain. So that if you ever change from somewhere.com to someplace.com, then your domain will point people to that correct place. It's like for the audacity to podcast. When I do the live show, I always tell you, visit the audacity to slash live on Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Now the technology I use changes quite frequently. Sometimes it takes you to a page on the audacity to Sometimes it takes you to another service. Sometimes I change that service. Sometimes it's different things, but I always tell you podcast.com slash live. I own that domain. I own that URL, so I can point it wherever I want. Think also about maintaining reasonable ownership over your hosting. You could be in much more control by leasing your own virtual private server or VPS or a dedicated server. But however you host your website and media, even if it's on shared hosting and you have some third-party media hosting for your podcast media, and I do recommend that, Lipson and Blueberry are the top two places I recommend. You know my promo code, Noodle, gets your free month there. But even if you host with these other third-party places or you're running your own VPS or dedicated server, keep backups so that if you need to, you can more easily move if you must. Keep backups of your RSS feed, of your media files, of your website, of your database, all of that kind of stuff. So what would happen, for example, if your web hosting company said, oh, we decided to shut down and effective tomorrow, all websites will be offline. What are you going to do? Can you very quickly move your website over to someone else or a media hosting company? And this has happened in the past big, previously big name podcast media hosting companies have announced, we're going to shut down. All of your media links will be invalid. Get your stuff off our servers. You have two weeks and, oh, by the way, those two weeks are Christmas and New Year's. Yes, that's happened before and it's been horrible and there are lots of other horrible circumstances with some very immature podcast media hosting companies that do all kinds of bad things that make it very difficult for you to migrate off of those servers. But you know what can make it much easier is if you have your own backup. So even if you're using one of those horrible other third-party media hosts that make it really difficult to leave them, you can open a new account with Blueberry, Libsyn, or even Spreaker and go to them and say, okay, it may be hard to get my old RSS feed if you can't get it. That's okay because... Here are all of my episodes. Can we just upload all of these right now and migrate me over this way? It's much easier when you have that kind of backup. So as much as possible, maintain reasonable ownership over these things. Your RSS feed, your domain, and your hosting. Yes, there are times when you are, or actually I would say, you are always at the mercy of something else. But as much as reasonably possible, maintain your ownership over these things. That's number two. Number three, use secure passwords. Weak passwords are one of the easiest ways to access anything online. Generally, the harder a password is to speak, type, and remember, the better it probably is. So secure passwords should be long, like use the maximum number of characters a site or service will allow. If they say 8 to 16 characters, make your password 16 characters long. I generally make my passwords 20 characters or longer if the site will allow it. But there are other ways to make your password secure, like using a mixture of characters. Use numbers, uppercase and lowercase letters and symbols as random and nonsensical as you can make it. Also avoid anything from the dictionary. Words are really easy to guess and don't include anything personal. Birthdates, names, places, and such can all be figured out and maybe things people would try in attempts to get into your account if someone knows you or knows a little bit about you and they're trying something malicious. The only passwords you need to know by memory are the ones you have to enter without a password manager. For example, your mobile device password, your PC password, your password manager password, your password maybe to your Apple account, if you have an Apple ID or an iPhone, that kind of thing. Those are the important passwords for you to be able to remember. So this is number three, use secure passwords. Number four, activate two-factor authentication everywhere. Two-factor authentication, often abbreviated as 2FA, is when a second method of authentication is required. This could be a link or code sent through email, SMS texting. It could be through the actual mail, like post office kind of mail. It could be a phone call or some other notification like a push notification from an app or service. Thus, logging into anything on a computer, for example, would require not only the username and password, but also a code either generated by a different algorithm and available only on another device or something sent to some other location. And those codes are quite often random and they expire. They may expire after they're entered or they may expire every 30 seconds, something like that. But that makes your account immediately much more secure because for someone to load your profile and access that information, they need to not only be able to log in with the password, they also need that other device that contains that special code. That's two-factor authentication. Look for that in as many places as possible. Number five, make up answers to security questions. Darwin from Dealing With My Grief podcast commented on my last episode when I was talking about privacy and suggested a similar concept to this. He said, one thing I do to protect myself when setting up accounts is to never use true information for the security questions. For example, if one of my security questions for the account is, what's your mother's maiden name or name of your first school, my answer might be something like applesauce. The information doesn't have to be true, just something to which you can provide the correct answer. With things like classmates.com, ancestry.com, or a Google search, it's very easy to find the real answers to those questions. That is great. And this is something that I haven't yet implemented, but I'm starting to implement right away. Well, You know those things where it's your bank account or any kind of account where they let you either choose from a list of questions or you enter your own questions, stuff like where were you born, what was your first car, who was your first crush, and stuff like that. While some of these may be things that truly only you know, it's probably more likely someone else could easily figure them out, especially with how transparent social networks make us. People could figure this out they might find a photo of you with your first car and they'll know, oh yeah, that's the make and model of their first car. I'll enter that as the answer to their security question. Or they might remember you naming your first crush or anything else like that. Now, usually these answers don't actually have to be correct or even make sense. Like Darwin had said, you could say applesauce is your answer for one of them. The answer could even be another completely secure password with the case sensitivity, the different symbols and characters and all of that crazy stuff. I do recommend that you be careful with things like birth dates as some services may require a photo ID at some point, especially if there's a problem with your account. My friend Todd Cochran, CEO of Raw Voice and Blueberry, ran into this recently with his Facebook profile and he shared this on his podcast episodes. Where he had a problem with his Facebook and he was locked out. And the only way he could get access to it was by showing them his photo ID. But then the birth dates between the accounts didn't match up because he entered a fake birth date on his Facebook account for privacy and security reasons, very understandable. But then he had a hard time when he tried to get back into his account because that information didn't match up. So do be careful with stuff like that. But for those other things, have random answers to those things it could be something that maybe there's a formula in your mind that it's whatever the first word is that comes to your mind when you think of first car it's Flintstones or something like that first crush orange it could be anything like that now if it's too easy to guess from that you might not want to go that way but you could come up with a formula that you can remember that thing or this leads into my next point number six use password managers. The last three tips I gave you focused on securing your logins, making unique, really hard-to-guess passwords, secure passwords using two-factor authentication, and making up answers to security questions. All of this stuff can be very difficult when you have only your memory to guide you. Thus, I fully recommend using intelligent password managers to create secure, store, and pre-fill that information for you. For password managers, I recommend LastPass and 1Password, both fantastic options. They both have different membership levels, free and premium. I am a paying user for LastPass. I really like it. I've used it for years. For two-factor authentication, I recommend Authy, which is available on multiple platforms, and it ties in with Google Authenticator. So anything that says you can use two-factor authentication with Google Authenticator will work with Authy. Another cool one that's coming out is LastPass Authenticator, which is more of a push notification system. So instead of your having to enter a code, you might have to simply look at your other device and press a button to authenticate with the website you're trying to log into. 1Password also has a great two-factor authentication integration with your computer even, but that may somewhat reduce the security if your devices are in the same network, depending on how you set these things up, but it does enhance the usability of these things. These tools will manage all of your secure passwords. They encrypt and store them securely and also protect other secure information, like those fake answers to security questions. In LastPass, you can save form field information, and you can say the answer to who was your first crush is orange juice, and all of the other answers to those fake questions. You can save them as a secure note or you can save them as form information. Whatever you can do to save that information securely and in an encrypted way, do that. And I think those password managers are a great place to start. I know there are several other password managers. These are the two I have the most experience with, the ones that I've seen most highly praised. And most universally and easiest to use options out there, cross-platform compatible and all kinds of great things, LastPass and 1Password and then some of these other apps that can integrate with them. Number seven, backup regularly and redundantly. Here's a fact you have to accept. The universe isn't perfect and at some point, something important will fail. This is why it's so important to back up all of your important stuff, if not everything you can back up. So consider backing up your computer hard drive, at least the important data on it. So consider backing up the following, your computer hard drive, at least the important information on it, like your documents, your podcast files, your desktop, all of that stuff. Your mobile devices, your podcast episodes, your website files, your website database, or databases if you're running multiple pieces of software on your website that create separate databases. Think of it this way if a nuclear bomb went off where you store your data, as horrible as that would be to happen, but if it were to happen, do you have your data on a backup somewhere else that you can access? If not, then you need to get into a better backup routine and be a bit more redundant with having backups in multiple places. For PC backups, Windows, Mac, Linux, I recommend Backblaze as your remote backup and I have a link to it, an affiliate link in the show notes for this episode at theaudacitypodcast.com slash security. And for local backups, I recommend an external hard drive, something that's several times larger than the hard drive in your computer, or at least larger than the amount of data you have stored on that hard drive. You can then use many different apps to automatically back up to that hard drive. macOS comes with Time Machine built in, so when you connect an external hard drive to your Mac, it will ask you, do you want to use this for Time Machine? And that can create complete backups of your PC. But there are other apps that can do the same kind of thing, completely image your drive to another drive so you have a complete backup. And then sometimes if if you were in that kind of situation where your house is on fire or a nuclear bomb is going off or something like that and you have to run out of your house, you could grab that hard drive. And even if you can't grab your computer or something, you could grab that external hard drive and you know you have everything, all of your digital data on that hard drive, even if you lose your computer. It's all copied to that hard drive. You can replace your computer, but can you replace the data as easily? Maybe, maybe not. That's why I think it's so important to back up regularly and redundantly. Number eight, archive instead of deleting. What happens to podcasts after they die? That's not really a philosophical question. That should be a practical question. What do you do with your podcast episodes when you're finished with them? I highly recommend that you keep an archive of all your old podcast episodes, even if it's only the MP3s, but I really recommend you keep all of your episode assets together in a single folder, and then you archive that folder for each episode. I've worked with many podcasters who have lost their episodes and had no way to recover them. One podcaster, their only hope was to go to Stitcher because Stitcher back then would download a copy of your episodes and re-encode it. And that was their only option is to go back to Stitcher and get as many of their episodes as possible downloaded from them. Now, they were lower quality, but at least they had their episodes. Or they could reach out to their subscribers and say, do any of you have any of my episodes? I desperately need them back so that I can re-upload them to somewhere else. Please don't put yourself in that situation keep an archive of all of your past stuff. So when you finish a podcast episode, I recommend that you compress that episode folder that contains all the assets relevant to that episode and then archive it somewhere safe and secure. Yes, get it off of your hard drive so you free up that hard drive space, but put it somewhere else you can access. Years ago, I recommended Amazon Glacier, which since then I've changed my mind on that. It's a bit too slow and can be a bit expensive depending on how much you need to archive or download all at one time. But today, the recommendations I have, and this can be constantly changing, but today I think the best recommendations are Backblaze B2, which is fairly new, Amazon S3, or Amazon Cloud Drive. That's what I'm using right now, Amazon Cloud Drive, to archive all of my past episodes. You could even use a spare hosting account somewhere. Or anything else online where you can store data and you're not violating their terms of service to store your data there, but it could be some way that you can have a copy of your data and maybe it's backed up redundantly too. Number nine, update frequently and upgrade when you can. WordPress, WordPress plugins, apps, and many other tools release frequent updates. I'm not saying you need to upgrade to the latest versions and releases, but I do think you should stay updated with the latest patches. For example, an operating system upgrade may be too risky with your old hardware or software. You know, going from Windows 7 to Windows 10 or going from macOS 10.11 to 10.12 or something like that might break things and it may be a free upgrade, but it may actually cost because all of your software then needs to be upgraded to be compatible with that new operating system. I'm not saying you need to think about things like that upgrading regularly, although that is a good thing too because the latest upgrades will usually be more secure. So it is best to upgrade when you can, but at least stay updated with the current version that you have. So you're getting all of the security patches and those updates. If you have to stay on Windows 7, make sure you are installing all of the security patches for Windows 7 or some other version of any other kind of operating system or WordPress website or anything like that. But as much as possible, please do consider upgrading when you can. Number 10, share login access smartly and rarely. Many sites, services, and people may require access to your other accounts. And as much as possible, avoid outright giving them usernames and passwords especially to fringe social media tools those kinds of things that say we'll analyze all your followers just enter your username and password here please don't don't trust them with that what's better is to use apis or oauth which is authenticating through a service instead of giving your login these are much better much more secure and they are As much as you can, the better choice to use when one thing needs to access another. So instead of entering your Twitter username and password, you click a button that says log in with Twitter or connect your Twitter account, something like that. So then you're logging into twitter.com and Twitter is authorizing that other site to access your information. And you can go back and revoke access to those kinds of things, which I'll mention in a little bit. If you must share login access with another person, I highly recommend you use a password manager to share that login without exposing your password in a way that doesn't allow them to copy and paste your password, but it can still log them into the site. So you're giving them access, but you can revoke that at any time and they can't access the site after that. And they also can't copy your password and paste it in other places. Or the better choice would be to make an authorized additional account for temporary access. For example, on uh, WordPress, you might want to make another admin account instead of giving access to your own admin account. That would be for if you need someone else to do something on your WordPress website. And then when you're finished or when they're finished, you can delete that account or downgrade its access or change the password and email address, anything like that. You're in much more control and you don't have to worry as much about something going bad by sharing the access or someone might need to access your google account and instead of giving your username and password google does allow you to authorize their google account to access certain things that can be to access your email access your youtube channel access certain google documents or transfer something to their google account such as your feed burner feed and that is if you trust them but if you do trust them then you should be able to transfer your feed to them and trust that you'll get it back. And I would say you can trust them with that more than trusting them with your username and password. When I used to offer the service of repairing FeedBurner feeds or podcast feeds and people would be using FeedBurner, I'd much more prefer that they transfer the feed to me so I could see it in my account, fix things up, and then transfer it back to them than they send their username and password over email. But Many people, for their convenience, gave me their username and password, which I then did delete completely to ensure I don't have copies of their username and password. Because if I got hacked, I don't want other people to get hacked as a result of that. As much as possible, avoid sharing login access with anyone or anything. I highly recommend creating a username and password for each site you want to log into instead of logging into sites with a social account. It, yes, it is much more convenient if you visit that site and you just click the login with Twitter button, but that's less secure because that means if someone can log into Twitter, then they can log into all of those other sites that you've logged into with your Twitter account. And it can be very easy for them to see what sites you've logged into with your Twitter account. Also, be careful what sites or services you allow to access your social accounts, even if it is through the more secure API or OAuth methods where you have said connect these accounts or something like that. There might be times where you're giving them permission to post to those accounts, even though they may say we won't post, but you're giving them the ability to post. There could be something bad happen in the future. They may change their policies or something like that. I've seen that happen many times before. Please don't let that happen to you. Be very careful with what sites and services you allow to access that information. Number 11, be cautious on public or unsecure Wi-Fi. You'd be surprised how much information can be harvested fairly easily over public or unsecure wireless networks. Ensure Anything you're logging into on these other services is done over HTTPS. The way you can know if you're logging into an HTTPS secure encrypted website is that you should see in your browser the HTTPS colon slash slash instead of HTTP colon or not even seeing it at all. You might even see a lock icon or the name of a company if they have extended validation, which is what I have on my domains. Like If you go to the audacitypodcast.com or my podcast reviews or podcaster society, I took the extra effort and paid the extra money to get a security certificate that has extended validation where a third party verified that I am the owner of these domains. And boy, it was a pain to go through all of this process. But It shows extra security, extra trust so that when you go to those separate domains, you'll see my company name in that security information bar instead of only seeing a lock. Now that's not to say you can't trust the companies that only display a lock. It's a different level of validation and security and trust. But another way to protect yourself when you're on the public or unsecure Wi-Fi is by using a virtual private network or VPN. That allows you to encrypt and route all your internet traffic through somewhere else. That could be through your home. It could be through a third-party service. Now, that will use the bandwidth of whatever that other VPN is, but it can be a way of keeping your information secure so it's not so easy to harvest on these public and unsecure Wi-Fi networks. Number 12, secure your mobile devices. Mobile devices could be the weakest point in your security. Not only could they already contain sensitive information on them, but they could also be used to access your other secure accounts with that two-factor authentication and stuff like that. And because mobile devices are small and valuable, they're also big targets for theft. Now, phone manufacturers are trying to counter this by putting in all kinds of special security measures and things on mobile devices that basically make it so that if someone were to steal the mobile device, they couldn't do anything with it. They couldn't sell it. No one would be able to buy it and use the mobile device. So it's less tempting for them to be able to steal it. It's basically like marked money or something like that. They can track them, all kinds of things like that. So ensure your mobile device has the utmost security enabled. Encryption, location tracking, uh, even those things like bricking your phone or erasing all of your data on a certain number of failed login attempts. And here's the other thing I think you should consider. Instant locking. That is, as soon as you turn off your phone or as soon as you put it in your pocket or something like that, it's locked and requires the password again. I know on the Android side, there are apps, depending on if you have a rooted phone or other certain things and what phone you have specifically, but there are some apps that will keep your phone unlocked on certain Wi-Fi networks, but lock it instantly on other Wi-Fi networks. On the iOS side of things, the locking and unlocking is much faster now with Touch ID, and that's a direction that we may be going in the future where it's that kind of biometric unlocking sort of thing, and it does instantly lock. The reason why it's so important to have an instant locking device is think of it this way. What if you just did something on your phone? It's unlocked. You set it down on a table, and then someone runs by, grabs it, and they turn it back on and it's unlocked. That could happen if you have any kind of timer that doesn't lock, like passwords lock the device after a certain number of minutes. If it locks instantly, then if they grab the phone, yeah, they have the phone, but they can't unlock it. They can't access the data. They can't turn off the tracking or certain things like that. Beyond the digital side of security, do also be secure with the physical side of the security of your device. Of course, protect your phone from damage by using a case uh, because if that phone is used as your two-factor authentication, it's the only way for you to be able to use two-factor authentication with some site. If your phone is damaged. Then you may not be able to log in to those other sites unless you have certain backups, and there are other ways that you can do that depending on the app and service you're using. But also protect your phone from theft by carrying it in harder to steal areas and using a case or something like that that helps secure it better wherever you're storing it, whether that's in a holster, in your pocket, or something like that. And please, don't set your phone out where someone could easily grab it. I see this way too often. I am amazed how many times people, I'll see it like at coffee shops or restaurants or something, people will be working on their phone, they'll put it down on their table, they'll turn their head and look out the window. And I, I'm tempted sometimes to go grab their phone simply to prove the point to say, hey, you should have been watching closer. Look at this. I now have your phone and guess what? It's unlocked too because you don't have instant unlocking. So I could get all your information. Please lock your phone. Please store it more securely. Please be conscious of where you put your phone. If you have to set it on the table, don't set it on the side where people can run by and grab it or ride a bicycle or anything like that. If you have to put your phone in your pocket, then put it somewhere that's harder to get to. Like front pockets are harder to pick than back pockets. And also back pockets can be really uncomfortable for sitting on things that's why i've moved where i keep my wallet i no longer have my wallet in my back pocket so if you ever try and pickpocket me by checking my back pockets you're only going to get a tissue with snot in it yeah literally that's all that's in my back pockets maybe some business cards too depending on where i am but protect your mobile device secure it digitally and physically number 13 think critically a whole bunch of disasters can be avoided by making smarter decisions. I can't say your gut will always be trustworthy, but when you feel like something isn't right, don't proceed. Here are some suggestions. If someone, even someone you trust, sends you a URL with no explanation whatsoever, you probably shouldn't click on it. That, whether that's through email, through a tweet, through a direct message on a private social network, or anything like that. Also, don't give out personal information to companies calling you. If they claim to be from the government or a company you do business with, insist on calling them back through a number you trust. You can ask them, what's the number I should call you back on? Let me call you back and then I'll give you that information. And then you can compare that to the number you have for that company. If it's the same number, then you know you can trust them. Also, if something sounds too good to be true, it... Probably isn't true. And really, think seriously about the legitimacy of these things. A little critical thinking can go a long way to protect yourself. A side note it might be handy to keep some iTunes gift cards and Amazon gift cards set aside just in case the government were to call you and ask for you to pay for back taxes with gift cards, because you know the government totally needs iTunes gift cards to cover your taxes. Yeah, I think you're smart enough to know better than that. Number 14, monitor weak spots. There will always be potential holes in any system. So, here are some ways to keep things in check to alert you to a problem or quickly fix things once they've been compromised. Monitor your credit card and bank statements to ensure you're not paying for things you don't buy. That doesn't mean you have to go line by line. And double check and call companies and look at receipts and that kind of thing maybe you do that maybe you budget in certain ways like that and that's fine but at least be familiar with what should and shouldn't be on your credit card statement a couple years ago I had an issue where I noticed on our credit card statement something that I didn't recognize so I looked into it and I discovered that this charge had been placed every month on our credit card for the last few months I did further research that I thought I recognized the initials for being for something. I did further research and I realized there's no way me or my wife would ever pay for this thing. It was a sports thing. And if you know me well enough, you probably know I am not a sports guy. My wife is not a sports guy. So why is there a sports thing on our credit card for the last few months? We reported it. They checked it out. They verified that it was fraud. They refunded the money. We wouldn't have known that if we weren't monitoring those statements. I get calls about maybe once a month from customers to my different services like Podcaster Society or usually it's My Podcast Reviews. They forget about the $5 a month fee for My Podcast Reviews. So at some point they may be looking at their statement and they see something like NPR or D. Joseph Design or My Podcast Reviews and they may forget what it is or the way sometimes credit card statements truncate things or don't display the information they're supposed to display with those transactions depends on all kinds of factors but they see that transaction they can't remember what it's for so i'll get a call maybe once a month or every couple of months where someone is saying i'm paying you five dollars a month but I don't know what for. Can you explain? So I I do explain. I tell them, oh, that must be for such and such. And oh, hi, you're, you're Joe. Joe, it's good to talk to you. Any questions about your account or anything like that? Yeah, you're paying for this. You signed up on such and such date. You've been paying this much per month to remind you this is what the service is, what it offers, all of that kind of thing. So I have no problem answering those questions, but it's great to see people monitoring their credit and bank statements so that they know whether something looks suspicious. The other thing to do is regularly reevaluate your OAuth and API access that you've granted. This isn't really that technical of a thing. This is usually in sections on your online or social accounts under something like applications or API or access or connected accounts, terms like that. If you don't use something anymore, then there's really no need to keep it in your account getting access to certain information. So you could revoke its access from there. Like on Facebook, there are Facebook games that I haven't played in years. So why should I keep them in my account getting access to certain information about me? Or Twitter apps or different things like that, that I haven't logged into or used or have died years ago. It's no good to keep them inside with potential access to my account. If nothing else, Cleaning this up every now and then just keeps things tidy and helps enhance your security, even if you trust these companies. But if you don't use them anymore, then there's really no need to continue allowing them to have access to your accounts. Another thing is to look for indicators of problems, such as sudden performance issues on your website, which could indicate a brute force attack on either you or someone else on the website or server or domain registrar or anything like that. Look out for things like password reset Requests on your accounts when you're not the one who requested that password reset. I used to have this on one of my social accounts. Every now and then, I would get a bunch of password reset requests sent to me via email. It seemed a little bit suspicious to me. So, whenever I'd see that happen, I would go and make my own request and change the password. I think someone was maybe typing their email address incorrectly and was trying to log in with mine accidentally and couldn't figure out why they couldn't log in. So I can understand that. But also look out for other suspicious things that could indicate that there's a problem somewhere. And the other way to monitor weak spots is to scan for malware on your websites to ensure no one snuck anything on through some kind of security hole in your system or old WordPress updates or bad plugins or anything like that. Number 15, Implement protections. Protections are important, but you can't always rely on them. The most common protections are antivirus, firewall, malware scanning, and denial of service prevention. For antivirus, this is blocking and scanning for threats, viruses, stuff that could spread through your computer, break things, all kind of stuff like that. Firewalls prevent unauthorized access or suspicious activity from getting through either coming into your computer that's usually the way you want to do it is prevent those things from coming in or it can also prevent some things from going out. I remember years ago I was on a Windows computer and I had one of those screen sharing things that allow me to remote control my computer from anywhere in the world and I'm on my computer working and suddenly my mouse cursor starts moving in a different direction than I was moving it. And I'm fighting with the mouse cursor and I thought, oh man, my mouse is going bad again or my mouse pad is doing all kinds of weird things. But the mouse cursor kept going down to the lower left, the start button. And I let up to look at my mouse and I watched the mouse cursor go down to the start button, click start, click run, start typing in an IP address for a program that it would run. This was not me. I knew I had been compromised. Someone else was controlling my computer and they were about to do something even more malicious. So the, the quickest thing I could think of to stop this was I, I didn't worry about saving whatever I was working on or anything like that. I just quickly shut off my computer. You could unplug it from the internet or, or whatever, but whatever you can do if you're in that kind of situation, oh, do it quickly. Don't let them run whatever program it is they're trying to run. Now, there are those times that you're working with a trustworthy company and you grant them access to control your computer to do things. I've done that with Adobe and Microsoft and other trustworthy companies when I have called them to ask for their help. When they call you saying, oh, we've detected a problem with your computer. We need you to install the software so we can remote control your computer and fix it don't believe that. That goes back to that critical thinking kind of thing. Microsoft is not going to call you to report a problem. You're going to have to call them to report a problem. But a firewall can prevent many of these kinds of things, those incoming requests. A firewall will look for what are the usual requests that should be coming in and should be going out, block anything else. And you can run a firewall either on your computer or on your modem or router, or you could run it on all of these things. There are certain situations where you may need to know how to unblock certain things like for gaming or live streaming, but that can be fairly easy with the way the technology has gone the last several years. The other thing is malware scanning. This is finding and eliminating stuff that shouldn't be there. Someone might upload a file to your computer or to your website and they leave it to just sit there and then they activate it at some time or it's got some kind of timer inside of it or they're able to use that to run some kind of malicious activity on someone else's website or to spam or to crack information and anything like that bad stuff can happen. And that fourth thing is denial of service prevention. This is protecting your website or other systems from any kind of attack that uses brute force in order to try to guess a password Like, let's try password one, then password two, password three, password four, password five, trying that over and over and over and over and over a whole bunch of times in rapid succession and trying to figure out what that password could be. The other aspect of denial of service uh, prevention is to prevent these kinds of brute force attacks from simply crashing a server where you maybe get five visitors per day to your website And now suddenly you're getting 5 million devices trying to access your website. Your server can't handle that and it crashes. And it's a denial of service or DDoS or DOS attack. Try to prevent these things. And your web hosting companies and other tools and software for your computer can support these kinds of things. Now, any of these things, I would recommend don't buy them or don't install them when you see a banner ad for them anywhere. Because those banner ads are a good way to get people to install bad stuff. Banner ads that say, we detected spyware on your computer. Install this app to clean it or all kinds of things. And those banners can't even be intelligent to detect what kind of operating system you're using to say, oh, even though you're on a Mac, you have a virus. Click here to have the virus removed. Be careful with that. Again, think critically about these things. Don't say yes to all of these requests coming in about your security. Only say yes to what you decide to send out. Number 16, enable encryption. Consider your own computer. It may have a username and password required to use the computer, load your programs, access your files, that kind of thing. But what if someone connected the hard drive to a different computer? They may be able to access all your files with little or no problem whatsoever. Encryption can prevent that. Encrypting data will make it unusable without a decryption key and the latest operating systems usually offer advanced encryption techniques that will barely affect system performance. On my Mac OS PC for example the decryption adds only a few extra seconds to my boot up time and I'd say an imperceivable delay on launching programs. Now that's because I do have a faster Mac. It's a few years old now, but it does have a fairly fast SSD hard drive in it. And this stuff is really nice with encryption. It works really well. The encryption algorithms are very smart. So I really don't notice a slowdown from encrypting my hard drive. But if someone were able to take the hard drive out, stick it in another computer, they wouldn't be able to access the data because it's encrypted. With my encryption key, I have to be the one to decrypt it. So as much as possible, enable encryption on your computer, on your hard drive, on all of your devices possible. And number 17, find people you can trust. All these methods for protecting yourself and data are important, but also important is that you have a couple people you can trust with access to all of this. I think the first person should be your husband or wife. Additionally, consider trusting someone else outside of your family. I have this. I trust my wife with access to everything. She can get to any of my accounts. She can see all of my passwords. She can access all of this information. But if something were to happen to me and she needed access to the accounts or she needed to help taking over things like shutting down my business or putting certain things on autopilot, there's someone else that I've trusted with this information, given them passwords, and they've agreed that if something were to happen to me, like I, I died or I was paralyzed or, or something horrible happened in which I was not able to take control or transfer ownership of any of this stuff, there's someone else I trust who will help my wife with all of that. So that in that, that worst case scenario, my wife can still be taken care of. For you, it might be your husband or your family or even maybe close friends need to be taken care of. Maybe you want your legacy to continue in some way. Maybe you want to ensure that the money you've been raising goes to the right places. Whatever it is, think of the worst case scenarios and take necessary steps to equip others to help if that worst case scenario ever does actually happen. So these are 17 steps. I know I've given you a lot of stuff and safety and security are a big thing online and they are extremely important. So these 17 things are in the show notes at the audacity to slash security. Number one. Prioritize your privacy. Number two, maintain reasonable ownership. Number three, use secure passwords. Number four, activate two factor authentication everywhere. Number five, make up answers to security questions. Number six, use password managers. Number seven, backup regularly and redundantly. Number eight, archive instead of deleting. Number nine, update frequently and upgrade when you can. Number ten, share login access smartly and rarely. Number 11, be cautious on public or unsecure Wi-Fi. Number 12, secure your mobile devices. Number 13, think critically. Number 14, monitor weak spots. Number 15, implement protections. Number 16, enable encryption. And number 17, find people you can trust. Now as, as thorough and perhaps exhausting as this is, I know there are other things you could be doing. So I want to know, And hear from you. What steps are you taking to keep yourself and your podcast safe and secure? Please comment on the show notes for this episode, number two hundred sixty nine, at the Audacity to Podcast dot com Slash Security. And if this episode helped you or you think it would help others, I'd also really appreciate it if you would go to the Audacity to Podcast dot com Slash Security and share this episode on Facebook. Twitter, Reddit, Pinterest, all of those places that you like sharing helpful information. I'd really appreciate it and it would help the podcast as well. Speaking of helping the podcast, I want to help a podcaster here who left a kind review for the Audacity to Podcast in iTunes. Rudy, or in iTunes known as Big Rude, host of Cascade Hiker Podcast, wrote this in the iTunes USA store. I have used so many tips from your show. Thanks for always answering my questions, even though I haven't ever asked you one. The show notes have been helpful in the past as well. My podcast, Cascade Hiker Podcast, has been gaining traction thanks to this show. Well, thank you very much, Rudy, for that kind mention. You can check them out at cascadehikerpodcast.com. And here is a about a one-minute sample of Rudy's podcast. This is the Cascade Hiker Podcast. You're going to find out all the aspects of hiking in our beautiful Pacific Northwest woods. I'm a country boy with a soft sight. the heart wanders up north to the hillside. Now I've never made anyone quite as beautiful as you. Check us out over at CascadeHikerPodcast.com. That's right, CascadeHikerPodcast.com. That's where you're going to find all the show notes and links right there. Enigmatic like that of the cosmos. Never held your hand i a... I'm your host, Rudy Getzik. I put this podcast together to inspire you to get out on the trail. Are you putting in two-mile hikes, five-mile hikes? Are you sitting on the couch? Have you even gone on a backpacking trip yet? I'm going to introduce you to some folks that have done that and a whole lot more. So thank you very much Rudy for your kind review of the Audacity to podcast. I'm very happy to be part of helping you improve your own podcast. Now if you'd like to hear your podcast mentioned and linked to just like I do with Rudy's podcast and his link at cascadehikerpodcast.com in the show notes for this episode, then please write a review for the Audacity to podcast in iTunes and make sure that you include either the name of your podcast or your website address in your review. That way I can link to it in the show notes, just like I did with Rudy. And I use mypodcastreviews.com to get all of my international podcast reviews from all 155 iTunes stores sent to me automatically. So on Mondays, before I record a new episode, I have my latest reviews there sitting for me, ready to be able to read, give the shout outs in my episodes. And it's a great way to engage with your audience. No, it doesn't help you rank better with iTunes but it may help you rank better with your audience to engage with them to read their comments to give them shout outs in your podcast to acknowledge your global audience it's a lot of fun go over to mypodcastreviews.com to check that out I'll be reopening the registration to Podcaster Society very soon, still working on a couple little things after a major migration with the backend system. And I'm really happy with the new changes. I'll talk more about that in a future episode or email newsletter. But if you want to be notified as soon as registration reopens, and you might get a little bonus for that, then email me feedback at the audacity to to let me know you want to get in on Podcaster Society as soon as possible. That's feedback at theaudacitypodcast.com. Please go to the show notes for this episode to let me know what you do to keep yourself and your podcast safe and secure and to share this episode out if you think it was helpful. That's at theaudacitypodcast.com slash security. Now that I've given you some of the guts and taught you some of the tools, it's time for you to go launch or improve your own podcast for sharing your passions and finding success. I'm Daniel J. Lewis from the Audacitypodcast.com and the Daniel J. Lewis on Twitter. Thanks for listening. The Audacity to Podcast is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcast to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx. The Audacity to Podcast is also a proud member of the Tech Podcast Network. If it's tech, it's here. Find more at techpodcast.com.